So welcome Miguel and Tyler and Parker to the US Sangha. Uh, we have several uh, web groups, actually Skype groups that have all the name the Sangha as the first and that um, Skype has limit of 230 on a group to do anything with it. They'll lock it if you put a 231 on. I've seen that twice over the months. And uh, the Sangha has actually grown back up, so I deleted a few. Hello, Jeff. Welcome on. Hi, Gamarado. Hey, Jeff. So, Hi, so, Parker. How are you? But the word Sangha um, actually means uh, a whole lot more than people think that in fact it uh, when it is understood correctly it is the triple at the third gem it is the final big gem in, in the crown okay uh, and that uh, you you may have been in some Buddhist places and where they do the chanting uh, uh, Buddham, Saranam, Gachami, Dhammam, Saranam, Gachami, Sangam, Saranam, Gachami. Do Chiampi, Buddham, Saranam, Gachami, etc. like that. Have you ever heard that? I've kind heard of uh, really fast chanting before. Um, some of these people go super fast on some of their chanting. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's because they want to get it over with rather than making an impact. Making a what? <laughs> making an impact. If you oh, say impact. it well, it makes an impact. Okay. Because you want to emphasize that what this is, is um, never mind the poly and the syntax. What it means is uh, we go for or take refuge or we take solace or we take buddha almost like a medicine or like a harbor a safe place mm -hmm. and and the buddha then is uh in this regard both the buddha within and the buddhas without that we can locate as examples for what it is to be in that safe harbor in that safe place and then the dhamma is the teachings of the Buddha for how each individual one can practice to change their own mind in order to gain that safe place, that safe harbor. All right. Refuge. And then the Sangha is the community of those who have received that gift of the Dhamma, practiced it well, found that refuge for themselves, and now they're in community with others who have joined in also in community. Now, one of the properties of the Dhamma itself, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa stresses this, in fact, it's really a, a mo most major part of his teaching, is, is that we all have a duty to the Dhamma. Now, we can see that with the little D or a big D, but it's still true. The big D would Wait, be what is Buddha. Buddha Dhamma would be with the big D. And then the little D, D would be like the word that we use in English language as thing. So we could say that Buddha Dhamma is just the Buddhist thing. Or we can say that the, the Dhamma Kai is the entire body of all things. Everything. Okay, so you could then say that Dhamma is everything, 
or the all. And what this expression is, is that we have duties all over the place. We have duties to the Dhamma. And the most interesting one that we could give is a very, very clear example of a duty is, is that you have a duty to take the next breath. Hmm. I think I'll take one now. <laughs> <laughs> and if we don't do our duty to the Dhamma, we will suffer the consequences. So in a way, that means that we actually have a duty to deal with the world wholesomely. And when we don't deal with the world, internal and external, then we have failed to do our duty to the Dhamma, and then we, um, let us say, uh, deal with the consequences of us not doing our duty to the Dhamma. Part of looking about what you mean by uh, duty in this context? Like, what does it mean um, to have duty to the Dharma? Well, as you know that, um, or perhaps you've heard because you're too young, but the, the United States had a draft for young mm. men going into the military back in the 1960s, mm. which means then that uh, every young man had a duty to sign up to the draft. And they were called draft dodgers, those two kinds, ones that either didn't sign up for the draft or if the draft then called them up for duty, they went to another country or hid or whatever like that. So a draft dodger is one who is not doing his duty to the U.S. government. That, that makes sense. I, I guess my, my question is more like I'm having trouble thinking of the concept of, of duty in the Dharma, like. Duty, when I think of duty, it's something that... All is right, well, let me go on, then. Just listen for a while, oh, oh, and I will answer that question. Okay, for sure. And in fact, that's, you're, you're asking what I, uh, uh, where we're going with this. So, um, the way to look at one's duty to the Dhamma, then, is, is that uh, the duty is, is that we become friends with ourselves on the inside, and by doing that, then we learn to become friends upon ourselves on the outside with others and the environment that we're in. Now, if you do not do the duty to the Dhamma of being friendly with yourself on the inside, then you will suffer the consequences of being divisional within your own mind. Right? That the parent and the adult parts of the mind will have arguments. You'll set rules and boundaries that you can't meet and feel bad. There's all kinds of things that happen when we are in critical mind state. But when we're in a nurturing mind state or having wholesome thoughts, that means that we're operating out of a friendly environment. So that's one of the aspects, and we can say that one of the duties to the Dhamma is to cultivate friendliness, the friendly attitude. The things are not dangerous, things are safe. But in fact, if we're going to take refuge in the Buddha, the way we do that is by doing our duty to the Dhamma of seeing that there is a refuge and that the refuge is a friendly place. And so practicing friendliness will then help us find that refuge that is the triple gem. And we're being an example to others as well. Ah, that's where we're coming to later 
You're a step ahead of me. All right. So another uh, duty that we have to the Dhamma in general, and society knows about this rule, or let us not call it a rule, let's call it a duty again, which is what it is, and that is the duty of honesty. If we are not honest with ourselves and we will not see our mistakes the way that they are truly, that will try to hide from them and thereby be doomed to repeat them. So by not having the duty of honesty, we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over again without really giving a good instruction. So this is the other wing of the bird that we can say as the, are the two primary areas that we have to look at in our duty to the Dhamma is friendliness and honesty. And if an individual can learn to do that all by himself, that's absolutely remarkable. That in practice, he can do it himself. He needs to go off and be alone so that he's not around other people who are not doing their duty to the Dhamma. They're not being friendly to him, and so he's not going to be friendly back. They're not going to be honest with him, so he's not going to be honest back. The best way for him to uh, manage his life is to take a hike. Right? And that was the Buddha. But now there's also the issue of one who can do that, who can be honest with himself and friendly, but in fact, friendliness is the most important part. To be friendly first and honest second. But we have to have both of them. Like a one-two punch. And so with that honesty, by the way, we can say it like this. If you have a group of people, or how big or small it is, that has only friendliness and no honesty, it's going to wind up being a mob organization, something like the Catholic Church or maybe the Masons or uh, your typical mob group in New York, the, uh, the Casa Nostra, the Yazoo, uh, the Samurai, whatever the names of it are, that's because um, uh, each one of them is trying to do the right thing, but he's not doing it in a friendly way. Okay. Now, if you have, uh, excuse me, I got that backwards, that in the Masons, they all are very, very friendly with each other, but closed and tight, but they're not honest with the world and they're not honest with each other about their stories. If you have an organization that has no friendliness, but only has honesty, now you've got political parties who are at fight at war with each other. And basically we can say that each individual one of us is made up of at least three political parties with three different points of view. We have the parent ego state, which is also all of the rights, rules, rituals, way things should be, all of the rules that we've ever picked up from society. And then we impose those rules upon ourselves, the child, and the child rebels against that. And so uh, by being friendly, that means that we begin to investigate these rules, change these rules so that we can have a set of a morality, individual morality for ourselves. Hello, Robert, good to see you. And that individual morality then that we have is wisely worked out over time based upon friendly investigation. So 
There's the other side of it then, and that is the issue of the Sangha, because if an individual or two individuals together deal with each other as well as within themselves with friendliness and honesty, then we can have Sangha. That Sangha is actually the, uh, the formal name with the big capital letter, the Sangha is actually the order of Buddhist monks throughout the world. But that's actually kind of a formal way of looking at it. But there are also informal ways of looking at it in the sense that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, the Dalai Lama, and Titnahan were all friends with each other. That Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was friends with all of the high monks in Thailand. That that's the whole idea that monks do not compete with each other within that kind of Sangha. And that uh, Buddhism has been spread throughout Asia over the centuries, always carrying the triple gem itself, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, because it always was small groups of monks who went. Or maybe there was one Buddha monk who would go, and then he would start creating a Sangha around him. So it's the Sangha that needs to be formed when people are studying the Dhamma together so that they can practice friendliness and honesty with each other. When we practice, then so that's the idea then of having these calls for uh, a number of people. I mean, it would be kind of difficult <coughs> if a hundred people were on, but with six or seven, under nine, in fact, uh, people can get to know each other, ask questions with each other, become friends with each other. And these friendships can and will last for the rest of your lives. Isn't that interesting? That if we do our duty to the Dhamma, there are actually very positive benefits. And that is, is that you will begin to cultivate a wide variety of friends. I didn't even know how to do that. The way that I was raised, my family moved from town to town to town once every year or two years. And I was always an outsider. And so I had the mentality of an outsider and I became an outsider everywhere I went, that there was no plan that I was ever on an insider. And what I mean by the insider is the one who has taken refuge in the organization. Then in fact, a little story I'll tell you that won't go into too much detail. But there became a squabble within the organization of uh, psychotherapists and the various students because they thought that there were in groups and out groups. And there were people who were jealous of who was on an in group and who was on an out group. This reached a discussion point to where one of the uh, um, professors uh, decided, let's take a poll. Everybody get out a piece of paper and you write down five names of people that you think are on the inside. And during the break, they made the tally of who was on the inside and who was on the outside. And the thing that surprised everyone is those people who were listed in this group of being insiders, all of them thought that, no, they're not the insiders. Someone else is, and I'm not an insider. The funny thing of all was is that my name was on that list of being an insider, and that really changed my point of view about things. But hey, I actually am an acceptable human. I'm okay with all of the people that they think that I'm an insider. 
<laughs> wow, what a relief that was. It changed my whole attitude of life in that respect. Bhikkhu Dasa changed a whole lot more, but that's a point that I can say that that was the one thing that I began to understand that there is an inside that I can join, but that the uh, payment or the um, the dues, the duty to being an insider is that you have to be both friendly and honest. And that's what gets you on the inside. Robert, you got your hand up. Um, okay, I was on mute for a second. So, sure. So, um, I'm curious, you know, I know John Poe asked you to start teaching the Dhamma one-on-one -on -one via Skype. Have you talked with him about the plans for the Sangha and all of this? What, what are his thoughts? I, I have not spoken to him directly, but he, believe me, knows all about it. Cool. <laughs> because I'm in, a, I'm in a community and I've communicated with Brenda and uh, Tun especially. So uh, if it hasn't gotten around to him, it will. And it's not important. And in fact, I'm absolutely sure based upon what I know of the conversations that he's uh, spoken about that he sees that, yes, that is also missing in Western Buddhism. But sure. in fact, going back to that point, Western Buddhism did not get Buddhism the way that it got around Asia through the monkhood of established teachers uh, teaching the Dhamma. It got uh, started by Westerners being curious from the outside. So Western Buddhism is, is actually, in a way, it's an outsider's view of Buddhism. So what was left out? Well, some of, uh, okay, I'll tell you what was left out. <laughs> Friendship and honesty were left That's what out. Better. Okay, yeah. All right, because it started that way of being left out. It was already left out in the society, and when Buddhism, when people got interested in Buddhism, all they were thinking about was uh, the Dhamma and the outcome without actually considering this duty aspect of it and, and the community. But in fact, whenever monks have come to uh, the West with Western influence, like all uh, Suzuki and Chongfar uh, uh, Rinpoche, they came individually on their own. Uh, but the, what, the Asian community that's in the West uh, came because of the refugees out of uh, uh, the Vietnamese War. By the millions, by the way. With North Carolina, which is where I was in, involved with the community, there's, uh, or at least 15 years ago, these numbers have probably increased now, about 20,000 Vietnamese, about 12,000 Lao, about 7,000 Cambodians, and maybe 2,000 Thai. And today, uh, during the 1990s, after they had come to the U.S. and established themselves in business and gotten all of the stuff done that they needed to, then they decided to start building Buddhist temples. So in the, uh, uh, the 1990s, a few of them got built, but in the 2000s, so there's a lot of buildings under construction. But what building? 
And part of that uh, uh, white building was also, you could think of it as these were cultural centers for the Thai culture or the Lao culture or the Cambodian culture. And a major part of Cambodian culture, for instance, is a Wat. And so they want monks there. Well, Cambodian Laos do, do not have good visa relationships with the US the way that Thai do. And so the uh, Lao Wats and the Cambodian Wats often will have a Thai or two or three or five monks there. So most of the monks in the US are, are Thai monks, but there are still a lot of Laotian monks within the Laotian community. Now, the important point is, is that within the, these Asian communities, within these Wats, they do practice Sangha. They do practice openness and honesty. And anyone who wants to come join in, they're free to come join in. And the longer they stay, the better uh, installed they get. That's what I kind of found at Wat So and Mok was, is that I was acceptable as an insider immediately. That was so uh, such a relief. Just, I mean, the, the Sangha was there waiting for me. And all I had to do was to add my friendliness. Because I've been a hardcore honest kind of dude for too long. <laughs> and when, what I was missing was the friendship. And so now that I know how to add the friendship to it, that is the door that opens it in so that you too can become an insider. Inside of what? Inside of a sangha, inside of a group of people who are open and honest and friendly with each other. That's what the sangha is all about. And that's not only the outcome of good Dhamma practitioners coming together. It's also now a menu for new people to join the sangha and over time, they learn their duty to the Dhamma of being friendly and honest. And therefore, they can now become really excellent Dhamma dudes, nobles, without doing very much or any at all what we would call in the West formal meditation and think that the formal meditation is the only thing that will get you enlightened to where in fact, no, just sitting around a bunch of other enlightened dudes, that's enough to do it for you. But you could think of it as guilt by association. That people who hang out in bars tend to be alcoholics. People hang out at the sports field tend to be sports fans. So people hang out in churches tend to be whatever religion that the church is that they hang out in. Well, that happens with ordinary organizations that are missing a bit of friendliness and a bit of um, uh, honesty here and there. But if we have an organization that's actually dedicated to both friendliness and honesty with one another, then we can help each other grow in our Dhamma practice so that we too can be free. So we have these qualities then of um, honesty and friendship actually means openness. Now, the question is, where are the boundaries for that openness? The boundaries have to do with our immediate environment. And also the question would be, in other words, whoever is in your world and your sphere, 
that's who you are obligated to be friendly to. But people you don't know, but you've heard about, stay on the news, you have no obligation to them for the Dhamma or the duty to the Dhamma at all. But in fact, if you think you've got a duty to the Dhamma, like in fact, I think that it's my job to go down to Mar-a-Lago and straighten things out there because they're messed up. If I have that kind of attitude and take on duties that don't belong to me, then I'm just going to be causing more trouble. So another way of looking at the Dhamma is to figure out, or the duty to the Dhamma is to figure out what is our duty and what is not our duty, or in fact, what is our duty to not do? Okay, it's not our duty to go straighten people out who are not our friends. So that's the definition. Are you a friend or not? Well, if you're friendly to people, then they will be friendly back. But if you've got people who are um, in Sangha in the sense that they realize that they have a duty to be both friendly and honest, then things are going to become open. And an example of that is four or five or six of us are here on this uh, Sangha group, and one of them is talking about, oh, he's got this or that problem. Everybody's going to join in and, and basically tell him that, hey, I've got that same problem. This is how I'm dealing with it. And then six people can figure out how to deal with a problem that six people had, but they thought that they had it individually. And to now they recognize, oh, everybody's got that. <clears throat> Funny that McGill came on just exactly at the time that Tyler went off. Did you see that? <laughs> yes, Robert. Oh, and look at that. Oh, <laughs> I'm home. It happened again. <laughs> so, uh, so one question: um, What are the differences between um, uh, Thai Buddhism, Vietnamese, and Cambodian and Laotian? You know, what are the differences between those different, aside from the language? You know, uh, no, it's only the language, and even that's not an issue. Hmm that in fact, I learned a lot more about the Sangha when I was in the United States than I did because it was the sea that I swam in and, and I watched so and oh. Hmm. And so I didn't really see it. In fact, I didn't do a lot of the duties that many monks at Watch so and Mo had to do, which would be like funerals, ordinations, um, uh, going out, for uh, lunch uh, with a group of other monks, all of those kind of things were done by the very senior monks at Wat Suen Mo. But when mm. I got into the United States, by that time I had kind of become a senior monk anyway, as well as the fact that it was all hands on deck for the kind of stuff that needed to be done in the US, mm. uh, which had to do with funerals. We did a lot of funerals. <laughs> A lot of funerals. Basically, because there was a lot of freedom fighters of the 1960s and 70s had gotten old by the 1990s and 2000s, so that they, uh, um, the old men were, were dying off. So, back to the point, there were not enough monks in any particular grouping like Cambodian or Lao or Thai. But when you put the Cambodian, the Lao, the Thai, and the Vietnamese together, 
now you've got a much larger group to deal with. But in fact, there was uh, on one day, there were two different funerals. And, the, uh, and one had four in it. Let's see how many were there? And the other one had two. There were two young men who were dead uh, and, and uh, cremated on one day. And on the afternoon of that same day, four new other young men were cremated. Four of them were Vietnamese and two of them were Lao. They had gotten into Charlotte, North Carolina's underworld and gang and gotten into a street fight and killed each other. But the monks, not just the monks, but the families, this actually brought the community of the Lao and the uh, uh, Vietnamese much closer together in North Carolina was because of this funeral. But the monks that were there were Vietnamese and uh, Lao, Cambodian, Thai. It was a whole show. Every, there was a lot of monks there to show the support for these families that had lost these young men, but also ordinations. That when someone, especially a, a political, there was a lot of political ordinations, very few ordinations in the United States happened by someone who was intended to be a monk for the rest of his life, but there were a few. Most of them would go back to their country to be uh, trained in their home country as a monk. So that they would not be a burden for the monks and uh, to train them uh, a monk while they're trying to operate a, a, a Lao Sangha. So what I'm saying is, is that the Westerners would be much, much better off finding Sangha by visiting and becoming friends with the Asian monks who already know and understand the qualities of Sangha, rather than everybody being a student together trying to figure out what Sangha is. Because if all of us come from the, uh, from the mentality of the Western business model, when we're trying to build Sangha, it will have so much Western business model into it that it may take over. So, ah, yes, Tyler, you have a question. Well, other question that I also have a comment. Uh, in LA, the biggest like Western Buddhist organization is called Insight LA, and they actually have made it like a yoga model where like you have to pay $30 to show up and like sit, talk to people who are also, you know, identify as Buddhist and have Sangha. And so like, they're trying to literally make, it's like exactly the commercial model of Sangha. And it's like pretty, pretty gross. Uh, so <laughs> Thank you for that example. Yes. And guess what? Somewhere within just a short drive, a short uh, amount of distance. Hi, Kishan. Welcome. Hey there guys, is the largest Thai Wat, actually largest Buddhist Wat anywhere. Uh, no, it's the largest Thai. There's actually uh, uh, 10,000 uh, uh, Buddhas. Uh, the Chinese place is bigger than that with more people. But the, the town down Wat in Los Angeles, the Thai Wat there, has like 35 monks. It's a huge organization taking care of a population of more than Oh, I would say 250, maybe 300,000 ethnic Thais living in Los Angeles. They say that Bangkok is the only city in the world that has more Thai people than L.A. <laughs> wow. 
And that one of the reasons why the uh, the monks want to live in that wad is because of um, the community, the friendship, and uh, the ease of living and all of that kind of stuff. <clears throat> As opposed to going to the smaller watch where they'll have more to do. So in other words, the more monks there are in a watch with a standard amount of work to do, the less each individual monk has to have any work to do. Is that a unit? <clears throat> Number of watts per, per monk, monks per watt. I'm sorry, what's the question again? I'm sorry, I was trying to make a joke. I, I, if it was a unit of measure, the number of monks per watt. I would say that there are two different size groups. There are large watts and small watts. And when I would say a small watt, um, I would be cautious to say a one man watt is a watt. That's a technicality. I would say that a real watt has to have sangha, which means two, three, or four. Normally, the watts in the United States that I was around, it was three, four, or five monks. Two is really not enough, but the more the better. It's nice how it ties back into what you had talked about earlier with um, making friends and being honest and you need to have, you know, critical mass. Yes, exactly. And you can also see that being a monk with other monks and treating each other always in a friendly and honest manner promotes that uh, new student's individual Dhamma practice, except that instead of going off into seclusion to practice having friendly, wholesome, happy, um, um, honest thoughts with himself, he can do that right in front of nobles. And so he just he starts to live the Dhamma. That's his practice. Right. He's, in, he's meditating whenever he's around nobles. Tyler, you got a question. That's great. Oh, is my hand still raised? Uh, yeah. Lower hand. Sorry. <laughs> okay, Robert. Sure. So you mentioned earlier that friendship comes before honesty, but they're both important. So uh, what what's the dividing line? You know, what's a case where you should put friendship before honesty, and where's the case where you should put honesty before friendship? Um, actually, what you're saying now is, is that we have to take things out of the noble sphere back to the ordinary sphere, back to ordinary dealing with people. Okay, so if someone is not your friend, the question is, what duty do you have to that person? And what duty do you not have to him? And that um, that also has to do with um, one's own dedication to honesty in the sense of, um, let us say that if you were just coming out of the bathroom in, uh, into the lobby of a bank, while that bank is being robbed, 
but the black robbers haven't seen you, so you just go slow the door and go back into the bank uh, to, into the bathroom. And you had that your cell phone with you. Would you dial nine one one? Would you do that? Would you actually tell the police that there is a bank robbery in progress? Now the question is, well, wait a minute. Where's the friendship in all of this? And in fact, if this is my bank, then of course I'm going to call. But let us say that I have just left the um, uh, the bank manager, and he declined giving me a loan. Now I'm not friends with that bank, so maybe <laughs> I don't call. Maybe it's okay with me that they got robbed. Okay, is that a right noble attitude? Which is it? Everybody, let's show, show of hands. Are you going to make that, that 911 call, me. or are you going to let those robbers rob that bank? Got to make the call. Yeah, got to make the call, Robert. Yeah, good. I mean, okay, Ron, you got to make the call or not? You don't make the call because they didn't give you a loan. That, that's kind of petty. <laughs> oh, well, I'm asking you, are you going to make the call even if the of bank gets you? Call? Call. How about you, Robert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about you, Jeff? I'd make the call for sure. How about you, Parker? <laughs> Parker would have made the call. <laughs> Your mic is there. You go. Um, yeah, if the connection is that the police officer is going to do the right thing and everything, then make the call. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We're talking about do I make the call right now? Yes, given the United States and the situation, yes. All right. Miguel, are you going to make the call? No, I'm not. Why am I going to make a hostage situation? Pardon? I said if no one is being hurt, it's only money. Why would I want to make it a hostage situation? That's a very interesting thing. But you don't know whether it's a hostage situation. You don't know how things are going to work out. Right. And they could very well just leave and um, take the money with them and, and be gone. But That's um, very, very rare. What if happen. you hear gunshots? Well, a lot of times I've worked with credit unions and banks and they're instructed mm -hmm. to give them the money and let them leave. Mm -hmm. OK. Well, that's very interesting. Because now we're dealing with logic. Hmm? Yeah. You, the oh. original question was, what is your, going to be your gut reaction? Are you going to just, in general, do the right thing? Are you going to, in general, do an investigation to figure out what is the right thing and then do that? Well, it's always good to reflect a little bit. So, yes, exactly. That's what we're getting at is, is that each individual situation is individual and each individual situation needs to be thoroughly investigated. And not, and be, some, and not be just simply reacted to. Yes, Jeff. I sort of had a, a situation that uh, I was actually personally involved with that that's, relates to this. I... I witnessed a drug deal. It was obvious. It was obvious mm -hmm. that these two guys were, well, one guy was giving them cash, the other guy was handing over a bag. And I thought to myself, well, okay, 
These guys are dealing drugs. That's against the law. But I'm in a city and, you know, also Canada is maybe a little more enlightened than other places, but not particularly enlightened when it comes to possession of drugs and how they deal with people who are addicted to drugs. And so I decided just to let it be because if I would have called the police, these guys would have been arrested. They'd probably end up in prison for I don't know how long. They wouldn't receive any treatment. And then they'd be back out on the street again with the with the same addiction that they always had. Mm-hmm. So I would just be create, creating problems for these two individuals without any benefit to society. Exactly. If they were actually thrown in prison for a solid amount of time, if anything, their addiction might just get even worse because they would probably still have access to those drugs in prison. Just a much really, yeah. worse version. So, I think with the said- bank robbery... I, th- I think with the bank robberies, what came to my mind was there was a, a, a really high probability of violence. So I thought, yeah, I better call the cops. But what McGuell says sort of makes sense. You know, they hand over the cash. That's what they're instructed to do. Person leaves. Maybe maybe it's a better idea to let the guy leave the bank first, then call the cops. Mm-hmm. Although the bank would do it then as well, I guess. I don't know. That's a tough All right. One. Now, yeah. here's the next question on that regard. Let us say that after several observations of what you originally saw was just merely suspicious activity, you begin to see that your next door neighbor is actually that bank robber that did that bank robbery. There's enough evidence. You saw him in the bank doing that robbery. You didn't call the cops the first time. And to now later, you identify that this is a guy that's living next to you, that he had a gun. He didn't shoot anybody, but he had a gun, and now he's got a house full of stolen money. Are you now going to call the cops? Depends if I had a relationship with him. If I knew yeah, this guy. No, yeah, okay, there that, are a lot of factors that are yeah, like, exactly right. Ah, there's a lot of factors. Because I, I, might know, I might know his life history. I might kind of yeah. know why he's doing this. I might be able to talk to him. Maybe that might be very dangerous too. Yeah, you know, like what if his mom has cancer and he needs money to pay for her? Like you don't, like, yeah, you don't know. You'd have to, yeah. like, it, that's tough to know. I wouldn't I, say I yes wouldn't or know no. How that was, I wouldn't know how that has any influence on. But let us say then that you also saw not only just the statement that I've got, but that you saw other activity that was criminal activity happening next door. That you actually saw someone being kidnapped or whatever and being taken into the house against their will. Now that's one I would definitely call. My defense for the situation is some sometimes people do the wrong things for the right reasons. You know, it really comes down to what type of person someone is. So basically, it has to do then with both uh, whether the act is violent, yeah, like whether it's out of desperation, how close you are to it, your own proximity, and your knowledge, right? So, those are the factors that we have to put into all of this. And uh, the problem is that the closer you are to it, the more likely that you're going to react to it in an emotional way rather than react to it in a logical way. And by the way, I want to congratulate all of you guys 
we're beginning to look at things logically like this, to put your adult in there rather than the, um, because I was expecting at least one to say, oh, I'm going to call the police because what they did was wrong. You know, that's coming from your parent ego state. Oh, well, there's I'm no such thing as wrong. The there's always I more mm -hmm. than surface value. Uh, this actually happened to my dad. So I have a funny story to, to share. So he had an employee and he, he really liked the employee and he was a good worker for him. And one day um, someone came in, I believe it was from the FBI, and said, have you seen this person? And showed my dad a picture and it was his employee robbing a bank. And, oh. and that was his employee. Even though he liked this employee, he felt obligated to say, yes, he worked for me and um, and he fired him immediately and, you know, reported back that he had this employee that was a bank robber. So, you know, in his in his case, his thought process was, well, if he's robbing banks, I don't know what he's doing at my business. You know, I don't know what else he's capable of, kind of like the comment you made about other criminal activity going on at the house. If they're already willing to take that step. You know, what else might they be doing? What if they're in a situation, let's say their mother has cancer and that's why they're doing it, that um, someone, a, a security guard is at the bank and pulls out a gun and he kills the security guard. You know, that security guard is a family, right? They have children, they have this and that. And then suddenly, you know, you have a, maybe even a worse situation, say the mother is 90 and the security guard is 30, right? You know, with two kids, you know, et cetera. So it, it's difficult to say, you know, how things will shake out because you don't really know. You don't know how the comma machine works, but you do know that generally speaking, where there's some dukkha, there's going to be more. Where there's some moral transgressions, there's going to be more of that. And that was my dad's thought process with this employee, besides the fact that he would have maybe gotten in trouble if he didn't right. <laughs> say something. So for the past few minutes, then we've been answering that question is, well, what if there is no friendship? Do we choose honesty or not? And the answer to that is extraordinarily complicated. And it is situational. And that it is better to do a thorough investigation to figure out what's the right thing to do. And then maybe it's a, uh, you think that that's the right thing to do. And then you do that. And then you look for the ramifications, the results, the backfeed, all of that, so that you gather more information before you make your next step. And so step by step, one step at a time is the right a way to go. I just gave the analogy to a student about this, in fact, about going down a rat hole, that when we see something that we like, we begin to turn our attention towards that thing, that rat hole. And if we like it and then want it, that's taking the step towards that rat hole. And if we take another step into the rat hole, then that's the clinging and that's the, uh, the beginning of going into the rat hole. And the thing that's really amazing about rat holes is who lives in rat holes? Rats. So when you get attracted to that rat hole and you go down that rat hole, you become the rat. But what you were looking for was really not in that rat hole. When you become the rat, that's what the Buddha means by going into a woeful state, becoming a hunger ghost or an Asura or um, going into a hell state. 
or more likely uh, the way that we do it in the West is go into the dumb animal state of just doing what we were told to do, go along to get along. And so that was some, one of the choices that some people will make about the bank robber. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to do nothing. I'm just going to go along to get along, even though I know that there is really dangerous things happening and it's going to make it worse. So now that we've thoroughly um, uh, worked on that, without having any more examples of that, let's look at instead how we can um, promote Sangha in the West so that Western Buddhism eventually can become real Buddhism rather than Western being the number one word that's in great big bold uh, neon letters and the word Buddhism is uh, a tiny footnote under it. How can we turn that around so that Western Buddhism actually is a Buddhism because it's got all of the triple gem. It's got nobles, it's got the correct way to practice, and it's got a community of friends. That's what we need to promote. And we need to promote it not just with each other, because in fact we're promoting it with each other, but actually beginning to form a sangha. And that's really important. That in fact the, doing it in the grassroots level way is really the right way to do it, where we uh, we'll then find a project that we can do, and then each one of us will join in and um, contributing a little bit to that project. An example of that would be Watsu and Moke itself was a project. It still is. It's just an, a, an ongoing project. And there are animals to feed and uh, pathways to sweep and uh, power to maintain and pumps to maintain and uh, visitors to greet and books to give away and all this kind of stuff that's happening at a lot. But it's done in a friendly, happy, easy way. That in fact, the guy who gives out books for free just happens to be his living quarters, his kuti, is the library. He just kind of lives there. So when somebody needs books, he's got them there out on the front uh, to show. And if there's another book that you want, you can actually ask him for it. But he's got most of the books people want. So in that regard, what we're looking for is a community that we can begin to build. And that each one of us is a, a volunteer or a player in that community with duties to do for the Sangha. In other words, we if you're going to be in Sangha, one of the things you have, you have the, a duty to be in the Sangha by being friendly and honest, but there's also other duties that we will have. And in fact, if we take on a duty, it will be of enormous benefit. A really good example of that is Parker. Parker has taken on the duty of uploading the videos onto YouTube. And I really want to, uh, every time I see you, Parker, I want to just hug you and tell you thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I really, really appreciate it. And that you stayed at it, too. That's an important point, that you've been on it and on it and on it. And you took a little hiatus, but we got over that, and now you're back on it again. And I really appreciate it. And I can also see then it really doesn't take that much time for you. But what takes time is the uh, time stamping, which anybody can do. And so 
Also, uh, Robert has uh, volunteered to go get the 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 uh, any legal papers that we might need if we're ever going to need legal papers. The right thing to do is to get a 5013C. There's still questions about whether do we even need legal papers at all or not. Sanghas in Asia don't have any legal papers. That in fact, the interesting point is, is that when a uh, piece of property is designated as a temple or a wat, part of the ceremonies is, is that, that the deed to that property is given over to the king of Tainan, which is basically means it's given over to the Bureau of Religious Affairs, which is a bunch of um, well-known uh, elderly monks in Bangkok that manage all of the property. So that means that basically there's nothing left other to do than let us say occasionally pay a water bill or um, a light bill or something like this. But mostly there is no need for formal organization that we can organize informally. But then there are those like Robert will say, all right, but we do need those formal papers. Why? Because we are Western people and Western people always have to have formal papers. Don't you have a birth certificate? Actually, I don't know. I don't have a clue about where my birth certificate is. I haven't seen it in years. I've had passports for now, what, 60 years or more. And I don't think I've ever shown a birth certificate in the past 60 years. So no, I don't have a birth certificate. But does that mean that I wasn't born? <laughs> and so that would be the question is, do we need formal papers or not to do anything? But for those who say we do, let us go ahead and, and go along with that in a friendly way and say, yes, if we need papers, will you please get us those papers? Because I'm sure that getting those correct papers is all that we need. Now, the problem with people who go get the papers is they think that once I've gotten these papers, this organization is mine. But that actually happened in the United States way too many times that when the, the lots would form, they needed property. And so they would get one of the well-known businessmen in their Asian community to go to the bank and get a mortgage. But his name would be on the mortgage. Fast forward 15 years, he wants to sell his piece of land. And he didn't pay for it. He just had his name on the mortgage. And there's been court suits about that. In fact, I've, I've been in, in, in them uh, fairly deeply in both Texas and North Carolina. And that one of the lawyers told me in one of these uh, cases, he says that North Carolina courts during that period of time were filled with cases of people coming and fighting over church properties. Wow. That you have the original people who owned it and their descendants. And so my daddy built this church, therefore that church is mine. And somebody else is saying, I've been on the board of deacons for 50 years at this church, therefore this church building is mine. And here we go dancing around with, I own this, no you don't. Where's the friendship and the honesty in that? Wow. And this lawyer said, that's the major court case systems in the United, or actually in North Carolina, I don't know about nationwide. But in those days and still, 
I would say that most of the church buildings in North Carolina are not used as church. Nobody goes there on Sunday morning. Nobody does anything. The property is sitting vacant because it's in court. Oh. Interesting. Interesting. Right. Okay. So that's why people want 5013C papers. And so when they go to court, they've got the papers to show the judge. I own this. And so if we do form an organization, we need to have enough names on it so that no one individual can come and say, oh, I'm more important than the other 14 or 25 people on this board of directors. That's why big corporations have big boards. Because a small board will be a one man show. And so we need a lot of people involved if we're ever going to do anything. And the way to get it involved is for people to volunteer as we begin to grow and organize so that we're making sure that no one has the attitude of I own this. That's when it becomes Sangha. If anyone says I own this, then it's no longer a Sangha, now it's a government, or works, a mob. In fact, there's a, uh, I don't know how old it is, but a recent movie, it's called The Nut Job. It's a cartoon about uh, squirrels in a park, or actually all the animals in the park, and all the dynamics. But there is one great, big, fat, I, I guess it's a groundhog or something like that, and he's the one who thinks he owns the park. He's the big boss. He's the tough dude. Okay, that's the old point about I, me, and mine. So an important quality of Sangha or our duty to the Dhamma with that friendliness is the honesty with ourselves that no, we don't own anything. We do not own this. This is a community that belongs to everybody who's in the community. And everyone who's not in the community is welcome to join the community. But when we get into I, me's, and minds, that will destroy any organization. Turns it back into a business. So the grand master at the lodge or the, the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan is the guy who says, this whole thing belongs to me. I know I had a grandfather like that, been there, done that. He was a plumber and he made iron crosses, stuffed them with cotton, soaked them in kerosene, and he had crosses that wouldn't burn down. So uh, if we have this ownership and control, we have no Sangha. It's, and that's what I can say uh, about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa that is so wonderful about him is, is that his whole way of running the Watt was not that anyone was in charge. This is a community and we're all living as a family together without a head dad. And so um, this is what we can promote in the West is this whole concept of Sangha, both as an individual that you can become a Sangha within yourself. Who's who's right now the boss? Right now, there's a war for who's the boss between the parent. Are you going to follow all the rules you know? 
Are you going to be the child saying, I'm going to rebel against all those rules? Because that's the basic conflict that we have within ourselves. Or we feel failures because we can't make up to our own rules. But when we have Sangha within, then we don't have rules. We don't have ownerships. We don't have this and that. We have communion. We have uh, unification. And so this is what we're looking for, is uh, a way for Dhamma dudes to learn this quality of Sangha, because then the Sangha can help many, many people gain great benefit from associations with noble people. Robert, you got your hand up. Sure, I know, I can't put it down. <laughs> um, but anyway, I'm glad I have this button, though, so I can, you know, keep a few calories on. But um, so I was wondering, you know, I, I've noticed, you know, one of the fruits of the practice, you know, so to speak, is to want to be less involved with everything, you know, and to kind of simplify your life, you know, in many respects. And, you know, and I know it's also said that, you know, there are many, you know, people in, say, caves or in Burma that just sit all day. They don't really get that. That's involved. the story. Have you been to Burma? Have you been in the caves? No, but, you know, I, I've, I've been in Southeast Asia, obviously, but, you okay. know, yeah. Did you, by the way, at Watsu and Mok, very close to the International Dhamma Hermitage, they have caves. Yeah, I think you didn't a... even know about them. Right. Yeah. Actually, the guys who go up into the caves there, they don't stay very long. Hmm. They go for a day or two or a week or so. It depends upon whether they're going to skip Pendabon. But it's not a hard a mountain to come down. Right. But the idea of people just sitting in the cave all along, basically what people do is when we think of those kinds of things, we think of it in photographic memory. And there I am just sitting in the cave, and that's a photograph, and that's what I am sitting in the cave. All right? Cave dwellers don't just sit in the cave all the time. They're up and about. They go take a piss here and there. They go out for food. They uh, go down and meet their buddies that are living in the uh, the kuti below the, the, the hill they're on. Or they'll get a high perch and look at the ocean. In fact, that's only six kilometers and so uh, from that hill. Uh, you can see the ocean and you can see the curvature of the earth and all of that kind of stuff. It's a really nice spot there. Mm. It used to be a very, very favorite hangout for Westerners. And there was a lot of Westerners hanging out at Watsu and Mo. They would all gather there. Five or six of them. They really liked the idea. I am a cave dweller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. I do remember you saying once that you know, pots you know, are make don't make great teachers because they're so detached and uninvolved, you mm -hmm. know, in a sense. And so, you know, do you think that there is a way in which progressing in this practice is actually counterintuitive to wanting to be involved with anything at all? Actually, um, no. Hmm. Because there is the quality of eagerness and the quality of setting one's life right, which means you begin to do things that are right and that you're going to be doing things friendly, which means that then you have an obligation to your friends. Hmm. 
All right, so you do have obligations to your friends. You both, all of you've got friends. Think about you not doing your obligations to your friends. That you can stomp around and make noise and use low class language and uh, uh, tell them what you think of them and all of that kind of stuff. That's going to destroy the harmony of your home. Sure. Okay, so you've got a duty. That in fact, one of the things that the psychologists know well about is is that people. Uh, will put on a public face, but when they get home, they will be their worst. So if the guy's had a bad day, he'll come home and take it out on his wife. Right. All right. Which means then that he's not doing his duty to the Dhamma. He's not doing his duty to the wife and he's going to suffer. And so will she. Right. All right, so now that we've established that we do have these duties, I mean, I thought that that was the first line that we had, and here you are making me go over it again. We can do that. Oh, well, right. I can't start my plate, so maybe that's why. Oh, okay, yes. That yeah. we do have duties to the Dhamma, and if we don't fulfill our duties, we suffer the consequences of it. And when I say suffer, what I mean with is put up with. And normally sure. what I mean by putting up with is, is that it's dukkha that we create because we're not doing our duty to the Dhamma. We making, we're doing something that is dissatisfying because it's unsatisfactory. But when we're doing things in a satisfactory way, uh, that's our duty to the Dhamma. Right. Okay, so now, yes, there is that Arahat who is above and removed, but he got that way from wisdom, and he also associates with others that he know will do the duty to the Dhamma so that he doesn't have to. That in fact, that would be the way that you could say that I'm trying to set it up here is, is that the more I, got, I can get you guys to do, because there's so much that needs to be done, there's so much good that can be done in the world if we would just do it, that there's too much for one guy. I couldn't possibly do it all. I can't go edit screenshots. I can't go make uh, icons. I can't go start websites. I can't do that kind of stuff. I can't go do the 5013Cs, not here from Thailand. There's a whole lot of stuff I can't do. I need help. I can get the help by people who actually understand that they will gain green benefit, just like Parker understands that, wow, he's the one who benefits from doing this stuff because he he really has been able to see things from a wide variety of angles. Met, met a lot of people and seen a lot of videos that most people, they just look and choose to see what videos that, that are there that they like. For Parker, he's looking at every video as it comes in. And so he's getting enormous benefit out of that. So if each one does some sort of uh, benefit for the Sangha, they will get benefit back from it. So it's not like the Arahat is completely wishy-washy. He's wisely wishy-washy. Hmm. He deflects that blow so that he doesn't have to do what needs to be done. He knows that there are others who are willing to do it even if they're doing it in his name. Hmm. The Buddha needed a lot of help. Can you imagine the Sangha that he was able to create in his lifetime? They say that it had about 20,000 monks by the time he died. There were 20,000. 
And of those, more than 10% really had it. They knew what it was. Talking about maybe 2,000 Arahats, mm. all living in Sangha together. He could not have done that all on his own. He needed the help of Sariputta. He needed Ananda. He needed uh, uh, Mahakasapa and Mahakachana and Chanda. And the, <laughs> and the list just goes on and on. He needed these guys, and many of them became teachers. That if you read the Anapanasati Sutta at the beginning, it says that these teachers brought, some of them brought 20 monks, some of them brought 40 monks, some of them brought 60 monks. You can imagine that a big university with all these classrooms, and they, um, uh, they have an assembly in the assembly hall, and all of the students sit in the class that they came from, all right? No big university can be run by one, uh, though I know people who think that they own that university. But one university kid is not owned by one person. It takes an entire um, uh, staff of, of teachers. It takes a, a, a faculty. So this is where we're coming from, is, is that the dean of the department may not do so much teaching in the classroom. But the dean is making sure that there are professors in the classroom that are doing the right job. Okay, so sometimes someone has to go up to that level of dean to oversee and overlook. But if he is doing a very good job, he's got nothing to do. Because it's all already being done. You could say that, in fact, that that's actually a well-known management style. If you operate in a company that's very stable, then the, the, the job of the manager is to do nothing at all. Any job that he has to do is to, screw, is to straighten out something that got screwed up. But if nothing gets screwed up, he's got no job. And so he could actually work in that direction of just having nothing to do. And everything works correctly on its own around him. That can be done in a family also. But in fact, that's the way that Sangha should operate as to where everybody does have little duties, but nobody's got anything big enough as a job that they become jealous of other people. That in fact, any jealousies are going to be because people who see other people who have, uh, let us say, important work that they're doing, that means that that individual now becomes important to others. And so if nobody is having any really important work that everything is just a piece here and there and we've got a website and we've got a teacher coordinator and we've got an advisor coordinator and we've got people who uh, <clears throat> look for ways of doing paid advertisement and other people are looking for ways of doing not, no paid advertisement and others are looking for uh, increasing the membership list and other people are doing a web, uh, uh, an email and others are managing the um, uh, the email addresses and these kind of things, then a whole lot of people have very little to do, but all of the work together that's coordinated winds up being something that is uh, eventually quite useful in the world. And that's something that we need because Western Buddhism is on a Western model, which means that the Dhamma teacher who is going to teach Dhamma is not in a uh, in a sangha that's going to take care of him. He's on his own, 
and he begins to think, yeah, I really love the Dhamma, but I love eating too. Which is more important to me, to eat or to teach Dhamma? And so they begin to look for how can they eat, which means now the Dhamma teaching is not their number one thing in life. Eating was always their number one thing in life. Are the four requisites. Getting enough food, getting enough shelter, getting enough uh, medical attention. These are the requisites. And when we don't have those requisites, those requisites become more important than anything else. And so it stays in that business, Western business model of the Dhamma teacher has to support himself. Dhamma teachers in Asia don't support themselves. It's actually not even allowed for the monks to support themselves. They're in community. The community will support them. And so we need to set up that kind of community in the United States that the a that the Western people understand. And we can do that in a variety of ways. And one of them is to get Western people more in tune to going in and plugging into the Asian watch. That in fact, my vision of a Dhamma teacher in the United States was someone instead of, oh, how can I make money while I'm teaching the Dhamma? Let me become a psychologist or let me open a retreat center, which is the normal path they go down. When they go down that path, they either wind up being a construction engineer or a Dhamma center manager with very little Dhamma teaching, which is what they wanted to do in the first place. And now they've got a whole lot of business to do. And normally their finger gets in the in the collection plate somehow or another because he thought all along it was me, it was my money, because it was my lunch I was working for in the first place. And so that shows that those Dhamma teachers don't even understand Sangha. But here's my idea is, is that guys who really want to become Dhamma dudes, those who really do want to devote their life to it, let us help them get into uh, a community where they can gain great benefit. They don't actually have to ordain. They can just live at the temple. Most Westerners think the only people who live in, in temples are uh, ordained. Well, that's because that's how the Catholics did it. But in a nation, what? Many times, most of the people who actually live at the Wat are actually not ordained monks. They're just there doing their duty to the Dhamma and live there. And so this is what I would recommend is, is that Westerners with the right ways of doing it, understanding the Asian culture, can literally just walk right in, sit right down and be at home happy and, uh, and friendly to everyone. And within a month or two, somebody will have the idea, oh, maybe we can have a meditation class on Friday evenings. And then the whole community that would never have come to that walk will now start to come to the walk because there's a Westerner there who is being supported by the monks that will teach. And so this is the idea of things getting started that way from the beginning, that people can start with Sangha in the next generation of Dhamma teachers. But now the next generation looks like that the only thing that they could do is go pay $7,000 for a two-year course and get a certificate out of it. And so it's a business deal, and there is no Sangha being taught to the next generation of Dhamma teachers who are going to be out there publicly making a big face, wanting to have this center or that uh, farm or whatever, 
trying to do their own thing because they've never actually been in Sangha. And so this is what we're looking for. Now, all of you may not have the idea that you actually want to go be Sangha, but you do see that that's a better plan for those who do want to do that. Parker, even though you may not be wanting to become a monk, you can see that it would be much more valuable for someone who does want to become a Dhamma teacher to learn how to be a Dhamma teacher from Sangha and be in that Sangha and let them support him rather than having to pay, uh, get a job and keep a job while we're paying $7,000 for our uh, entrance fee to the Dhamma teaching class. He can just quit his job and move into the Dhamma center and let us, through our donations, pilfer out a little money for him and there. He may need some gas money. He may need to, uh, uh, to have a new pair of shoes, that kind of thing. But his food and clothing are well, actually mostly uh, his food more than likely, he already has way too much clothing anyway. He's got enough clothing for the next 25 years. I've got shirts right now. In fact, every shirt that I've got in the closet, not many, but those that are there are all 12 years old. They're still good. Don't use them much. So I don't need to have new clothes a lot. Uh, but we can support them for incidental expenses, just like those incidental things that would be taken care of by the Lao community for the monks. But every year we give uh, gifts to the monks in ceremonies. So we could actually set that kind of procedure up so that the people could come onto a Zoom or a Skype call and we would present a guy with a stopping for his living expenses for the month or the year or whatever like that. It would be great. I mean, imagine that if you had about $500 cash every now and then to just hang out with because your room, your board, your friendship, everything was taken care of. Now you can devote your whole life to the Dhamma. You're reading uh, Dhamma books in the library, talking to the other monks, walking around the meditation hall, walking around the grounds. Just having a very, very easy life. And in the process, becoming noble, and then that nobility can then become rubbing off into the community that that young man lives in. I've seen this happen, by the way, at least a half a dozen times in the United States, and I've seen it even recently. We, we actually did this. Uh, uh, several of us, including my friend here in Thailand, Robert, we got through with the monks, got in touch with Achan Reet, and got Eric uh, into the Wat. He stayed there for about six months, and everybody who knows Eric knows that he found some Sangha when he was in there. Yeah, Robert gives a thumbs up. He knows Eric. Eric is actually our proof in, in the pudding that this concept works. All we need to do is to make this public knowledge that we can help people get into a Sangha, that they don't have to join my group because I'm not in promoting me. I don't care about me. I care about the Dhamma. For me, I'm just quite happy. In fact, I'm quite satisfied. The work that I've done over the years to help uh, many students, I've got many, many friends, many students. I've done enough already. My job is done, except for one thing, and that is, is that not many people know about Sangha. We've, not, we've got to get Sangha going. Without a Sangha, 
only those who have a close connection with the teacher will be able to get any Dhamma. But if we can get those guys in community with each other so that they really get the Dhamma and the Sangha as well as their Buddha, now they can go spread that too. And so that's a real issue with this. This teaching of the Buddha is so high and so sophisticated that it takes three major changes. One person to clean out his mind is the Buddha. Then the Buddha doing his duty to the Dhamma will share that in a friendly, open way and have a few students who begin to get it, like Sariputta and uh, Mahamagala and Mahagasapa were some of the first students of the Buddha. But then they began to make Sangha. Once the Sangha was going, then it could really grow. We can do that without the formal ordination process. In fact, I think that the formal ordination process uh, that has become Buddha was not what the Buddha had in mind anyway. But the very formalization came because of people who had ordinary thoughts. They could not see that this, is a, a, uh, this young man coming here is a potential noble. They came with the thought of, oh, you've got to jump through all of these hoops before we're going to let you into our club. And so the ordination became very, very formalized. And in fact, one of the things that's very interesting about a young man who is about to ordain is whether or not he has actually memorized all of the poly for his part of the ordination, or does he get to read it, or does somebody whisper it all into his ear? That was one of the things that I made sure that when I did my ordination, I had memorized that ordination. It took days, weeks to learn that or, uh, the, the whole thing so that you can recite the entire part. Of, oh, Bonte, I come to you for this, that, and the other. And I mean, it's all kinds of stuff. I've forgotten it now because I didn't use it much. In fact, I only memorized it for a one-time shot. <laughs> and so I don't remember that ordination. But Mahasamsa. He knew his part, the Achan's part, Achan Po. He knew his part. He would do that. They know these chants. But uh, going back to what Robert was talking about is that part of the process of growing into the Sangha, let us talk about these formal paths of Sotapan, Sotagam, Anagam, and Arahat are various uh, levels of the human mind that dictate what the duties to the Dhamma are. And for the Sotapan, he's the one that has the highest amount of duty. Why? Because he's the one who can see the Dukkha the most clear, and so he has the obligation to remove it from his own mind. And that obligation, by the way, is not obligation in the way that we use the word obligation. It's an obligation that we can use the word enthusiasm for. He's enthusiastic to take on his duty to the Dhamma because he knows that if he doesn't do his duty to the Dhamma, he's going to be paying the consequences for that. If you yell at somebody, they're going to yell back. If you call somebody a name, they're going to call you a name back. If you're very friendly and chummy with them, they'll be friendly and chummy with you. That's the way that it goes. That's what we mean by comma, by the way. 
the karma is I act, you have actions and reactions. If you treat people well, they'll treat you well. If you don't treat people well, they won't treat you well. And when you're in an organization where everyone is devoted to treating each other well and with honesty, and so many people can gain value from that. And so I will uh, kind of finish off this talk with that uh, point of each one of us can begin to see that we do have a duty and that we gain great fruits by doing our duty and that we can then begin to think of maybe I can volunteer, maybe I can be a coordinator of this or coordinator of that, because all that means is, is that I've got a bunch of friends that I email with. Or maybe I can do the business papers. And by doing the business papers, I'm going to have to deal with a whole bunch of people to get their names in the business papers, and so we can make friends by doing the business papers. Damadas, in fact, has been doing the discord, and as he's been doing the discord, uh, he's gained great benefit from that. Met a lot of people, had some friends, et cetera, like this. So this is one of the ways that we can see the value of doing this volunteer work is, is that not only are we creating Sangha, we're actually gaining the benefit of being in that Sangha. Oh, you raised your hand again, Robert. Sure, no worries. So um, so we recently saw last weekend the movie House of Gucci, and um, it was about a, a family business gone awry. You know, and it started out, you know, relatively okay. And then greed basically, I'm not going to spoil it, but greed basically completely destroyed the family business. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, could you do a little you know, spin or soliloquy on what poisons Sangha, you know, what, what causes it to unravel? I you don't know? have to, because you just did. You did my job for me. Thank you. <laughs> That's exactly what destroys Sangha is when someone gets selfish. And his friends don't point that out to him because everyone's going to get selfish on a regular basis but if we don't call each other down for our selfishness then the selfishness will build and grow hmm. that selfishness will build and grow just like the house of gucci it was something that somebody wanted and the more they wanted it and people kind of let them get away with it People want to go along to get along when they see wrongdoing happening. The question is, when do you eventually stop letting them get away with it and call them out on it? Do you have to wait until somebody actually gets hurt? That's what happened to Gucci. Because there was no sangha there, which meant that there, there was no honesty. We were friendly with the guy who wanted to take control, and we just let him take control. And by doing so, we were the ones who destroyed the sangha by our silence. 
so in that regard, we have to be honest. If we're going to have an organization that's really going to function correctly, it has to have both the friendliness and the honesty, which means that we have to be truthful to say what needs to be said. Now, it doesn't mean that we go around gossiping and stabbing people in the back and, and saying, oh, look what he did to me is not the right way. No, it has to be done openly in the Sangha so that everybody knows and everybody can figure out what needs to be done. And then, uh, if necessary, the whole Sangha then can talk to this guy to say, no, it does not belong to you. No, you're just being greedy and that you will actually have more friends with us than if you stop acting like you own the place. Almost every organization that happens to people do rise to the crop. But guess what? You've heard that cream rises to the top. So do turds. <laughs> and so um, th that which wants to rise to the top. Need to understand that it's better if they're just in the mix that no one is important, that the job to be done will be a benefit to one and all. But if we don't do the job because we'd rather own the place, then we're harming ourselves and harming others. So I think that that points out what you're talking about using the example of the House of Gucci. No honesty, and it becomes a criminal organization. Are they friendly? Let him get away with it for too long. Yeah, and the friendliness was completely destroyed. It seemed to me in that case, it was actually the friendship that was destroyed first, was the family growing far apart. And then the backstabbing started, you know, and then it just all unraveled. Yeah, so we have to uh, think things through and, and be careful. We've also got other examples of that, that I have seen places where we tried to get Sangha going, and then somebody decided that they owned it. The ones who sent, tend to get the uh, whatever legal papers, those are the ones who begin to think that they own the thing. Because they've got some sort of legal paper. But Sanghas don't need legal papers. We need friendship. We need honesty. The legal papers are only because there is no friendship and there is no honesty. So we back it up all with paper. Ownership. That's what paper is all about, by the way, is who owns what. And the thing about a 5013C and other things like that, I think is specified somewhere in there that none of these board members actually own anything. as opposed to an, uh, a corporation or an LLC, even though the liability is limited, the ownership of those uh, uh, assets are well-defined. So this is actually anti-Western thinking. How can we have an organization that's not founded formally, is founded informally, operates informally, and may or may not have formal papers, but the formal papers are a side point, it's a side issue. It's got nothing to do with it. 
that in fact, in that regard, even if taking donations, the donation taking should be open, not closed. Once a month in the uh, in a news may, uh, or m once a year or whatever the uh, the idea is, is that a complete accounting of, let us say, the PayPal, the entire thing is, you know, um, put into a PDF and published. That would be the openness, and that's why sanghas require openness, because if there is no open published um, issues about where the money went, then someone who is not publishing that but does know what the money is will automatically begin to think this money is mine. So that's it right there. If we have an open Sangha, we have to come to it from the position that everybody's here to volunteer and gain benefit from the volunteer work rather than doing volunteer work and then claim I own what I did when I volunteered to do it. You didn't pay me, so it's mine, I guess. Anything left? Robert one, Robert two, you got, how about Parker? You got anything? Jeff, what you got on your mind? Uh, yeah, I have something. Um, in following from our last talk, we did one on one. We talked about how depression is uh, ourselves ap applying pressure on ourselves, like, mm -hmm. for example, pressure to do something or pressure to be a certain way. And my question is, what if we feel depressed and we know that some sort of pressure is being applied? But we don't know what that pressure is for, why we're applying this pressure to ourselves. Um, what then? Well, number one is to be honest with ourselves, there is pressure. And number two, to admit, I don't know where the pressure comes from. Which means now it takes. An investigation. That uh, if we understand the map of Paticca Samupada, that uh, these feelings of depression are feelings. Where did the feelings come from? It comes from something impacted us in order to feel down, heavy, depressed. Right. So what was it that impacted us that caused us to do that? We back up into Paticca Samupada just one point and we see, oh, it's the Salayatana. It is the contents of the mind. This is why I often say that we talk ourselves into feeling bad. In this case, you've actually talked yourself into feeling depressed, but you didn't recognize what thoughts they were that gave you that depressed feeling. So now we begin to investigate what kind of thoughts that I'm having. So every thought that comes up, you can say, hey, if I keep having that thought, will I feel happy or depressed? And so we can throw that thought out. No, I might want to have that thought because if I keep having that thought, it'll build up the anxiety, it'll build up the depression, it'll build up anger, it'll build up resentment, it will build up negative feelings. But if I change the thoughts that I'm having into wholesome, happy thoughts, then these happy thoughts 
will not depress me. They will lighten me up. What kind of thoughts? Like, wow, I don't have to feel depressed right now. I can just be happy instead. Let me take a deep breath and enlighten the load. I don't have to feel that way. Okay. So that's the thing is, is that these feelings that most Western meditation students have, they don't even know they've got them until they sit down in meditation. And then they begin to do the body scans or the investigations here, there, and the other thing. And they begin to recognize, hey, I feel a way that I didn't know I felt before. And it is not a really great feeling. Many people go around in a, in a state of uh, Henry David Thoreau had the phrase living lives of quiet desperation. That would be depression that we're quietly desperate. And why is because we're giving ourselves desperate thoughts. But we're giving those thoughts so quietly that we don't even pick up on them. So quietly giving thoughts of desperation, we begin to feel desperate, but we do so quietly. And that's what society really is a lot about, is people going around living lives of quiet desperation. And they could be friendly and open and honest instead. Does that um, answer your question? Go ahead. Yeah, I have a follow up, which is when is it useful to investigate um, what the nature of the thoughts are that are making us depressed, such as uh, no, we could... that's the Mahasi method. Let's not look at the nature of the thoughts. That's Let's irrelevant. Decide okay. whether it is wholesome going to lead you into, into the direction of uplifting, or is it an unwholesome going to keep you? Uh, in other words, is it a rope or is this an axe? A rope is just mm. going to keep you mm. more bound up. An axe is going to cut those ropes. This is what we actually mean by the word kusala and a kusala in the Pali. You probably heard those words. And I've heard you said an area of, of uh, India called uh, Kosala, which is the same word, just pronounced differently. So Kusala is actually a grass. And it is like, uh, have you ever seen lemongrass? Yeah. Okay, so Kusala is lemongrass on steroids with great big broad leaves the size of a large um, uh, French carving knife. do is to take these leaves off of this cassava grass and put them under a weight to flatten them out and dry them out and you have a knife and that knife will cut anything except very hard things like wood and stone and whatnot but bread your hand all kinds of things can get cut with this cassava grass and so uh in buddhism we use that concept is can you cut this thing open or is this uncuttable? Or another way of saying it is, is that if it is uncuttable, that's dukkha. But if we can cut it open and see what's there, then that's um, not dukkha. That's satisfaction. I want to see what's there. Let's cut it open to see what's there. And if we can't cut it open and see what's there, we're feeling dissatisfied because we don't know. 
In that regard, kusala then is now, instead of just being able to cut something, we could say that it's wholesome. So kusala is now defined in English as wholesome versus a kusala, which is not wholesome. So another way of saying it, can you actually see these thoughts? If you can actually see them, then you can change them. You can cut those things open, whack into them. Or if it's like a rope or a bondage or a fetter, a belief system or an idea, you can just take that kusala and just whack that thing open and say, nope, it's not true. I can see right through that. Right. Um, sort of the, the part of the reason I was asking was sometimes I find it very well, often I'll find it really difficult to um, just throw the hindrances out just like that. Um, mm -hmm. And it can be useful to, if I know what the thought or belief is that's unwholesome, I can sort of try to debunk what it's what it's what it's um, proposing, and um, sort of invalidate it, like uh, logically and rationally, and then that can help me to overcome it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and a way that you can do that also is by asking yourself another question. This is more English language, but it certainly fits in with what the Buddha said, and that is is that we can look at that thought and say, "Hey, I can do better than this." right now. Right now, I can do something better than this. Mm. So, OK, I think I think that answers the, the question. Hey, yeah, got to go, everyone. Thanks. Thanks okay. Before you go, Thank let you. us finish this off with the point that uh, the whole point of this topic is, is that everybody has a duty to the Dhamma. And when we do our duty to the Dhamma, there is great benefit. For that and so looking for ways of actually going about and doing good will be useful for your own life but this is part of being friendly is to go around doing something good something volunteer for something uh be of help yes robert um have you ever written like a step-by-step -step guide on um no uh, on what you teach no. I, I, I was going to do something like that just for my own revision purposes, but we'll publish it. Uh, yeah, publish that's it what really. I was thinking. We could we could collaborate on it and put it on your website. Excellent. Yes, that's exactly the kind of thing that would be useful. Great. Sounds good. I have written in the past and I don't find it. But if you do, I encourage you for it. Oh, and Robert, I'm a I write for a living. So if you ever want some feedback, shoot it by me. I'd love it. That's perfect. Yes, in cool. fact, we can use it in our forum on Skype on the Sangha. So or if you've got big pieces to publish, publish them on the Sangha TH. Great. Excellent. Thank you all. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks. Jeff, we'll see you. Really yes, great seeing you guys. See you. <laughs> Peter, Parker, we'll see you. Roberts see you. and Roberts and Keyshawn, I think, is gone now. So thank you all. This has been really very delightful. I've really much enjoyed being able to share this quality of Sangha for you because this is the direction that we're going in.
is just an individual student is learning individual Dhamma by doing an individual Dhamma practice is only useful at a very individual level. If we're going to make any impact upon the world, we're going to have to do it as a friendly, happy group. Also, oh, thank you all sure. for this. All right, can I? Hi, guys. Ciao, everybody. <laughs>